0: Chapter 3. We'll pick up in the familiar story of Jesus and Nicodemus. So, we began this year by studying the, the essentials of what our church foundation, particularly, needs to think about and be about going into this new year. We're calling this series Focus, and we have a few weeks yet left to explore. But we began by looking at what the nature of biblical community really was. What the shape of community in the Bible actually looked like, rather than the sort of community that we think of in our minds. And we compared ourselves and our community to that community. And in our honesty, found ourselves probably lacking or wanting. And we saw that the gospel actually changes and makes a community out of people who are from different places and different backgrounds and different opinions and different preferences. And the Bible actually brings those kinds of people together, unifies them, and makes them a church, a community of people that are desiring to glorify God. Remember, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 that the church exists so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be magnified, put on display. Not simply for our neighbors, and not even simply for the world, but for, he says, the heavenly hosts, those in the heavenly places, the principalities and the powers. Even those that are at work in rebellion against God are beholding the glory of God and the redemption and the witness of the gospel in the church. That's what community looks like. A community of faith given to that pursuit, to that display of God's glory made up of people from all different backgrounds united together in christ and from this then we saw how the then essential work of confrontation and confession within that community will lead us to the sort of biblical church that we desire to see and we ourselves desire to be we talked about the idea of confronting one another in love addressing sin and helping draw out that sin from our lives for the sake of others and for the love of God. And in the process of confrontation, being willing and humble enough to then confess our sins. Whether we were confronted or we feel the desire in godliness to confess our sins before one another. But this work, this give and take of confront and confess is actually part of the, the day in and the day out of community that God has established in Son Jesus but there's still another aspect of the church that allows then this kingdom community of Christ to be formed and to be operated here on earth and that's the work of conversion without this fundamental work you don't have confrontation and confession that leads to repentance, faith and community And although we began this year studying community, working through confrontation to confession, and today through conversion, logically, and from the order of the Bible, we see we begin with conversion, which leads to confession, which then allows us to confront our sins and join and be the part of that community that glorifies God. So it was important, I think, for us to start with this big picture of community being what God has established in Christ and why he has created us, that is to worship and to glorify him and to work through what that community looks like and to end our thinking of community this week on what really establishes that community, this idea or work of conversion. Let me give you a definition of conversion if you're taking notes. Conversion is the subjective experience, not the objective, but the subjective experience in which an individual, having been effectually called by God and regenerated by the work of the Spirit, savingly responds in repentance and faith to the gospel. I'll read it again. Conversion is the subjective experience in which an individual, upon being effectually called by God, and is regenerated by the work of the Spirit, savingly responds to repentance, inresp- in repentance and faith to the gospel. This is what the, the, the Bible describes as conversion, where God calls an individual to himself through the gospel and works on that person's heart to receive the gospel, to own the gospel, to look to Christ as the source of hope, and repent of his sins and turn to Christ in faith savingly and completely. And I say it's a subjective experience and not an objective one because although our salvation is objective before God, justification is an objective reality that we are saved by faith, we are made right and declared righteous in Christ before God. Our conversion is very much subjective in that we experience it. We can remember a time in which we were hostile towards God that we did not love the things God now calls us to love, that God He himself loves, that we we did not have the taste of heaven that we do now as Christians. Then something changed in our lives, and that appetite for the thing God loves begins to grow. Maybe it was an overnight sort of experience where one moment you, you are one way, and the next you're completely different. Or maybe for some of us, and particularly those who grew up in the church, it was a gradual experience over time of maybe you were not giving up so much these heinous sins, but these little small sins of pride or self-righteousness that God gradually worked through the preaching of the gospel. Conversion is an experience that we enter into as God works <coughs> in us, that we can see in our lives, that we can taste that we can touch and we can remember. And although the result of conversion is an objective reality, saved, justified, the experience of conversion is subjective. We can remember it. We can celebrate it. And we can explore it. I think that's what John allows us to see as he records this interaction with Nicodemus and Jesus in chapter 3. Let's read there in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What is Jesus trying to get Nicodemus to understand? In fact, he rebukes him because he says, You're a teacher, and yet I need to teach you. This idea that God is calling particular people to enter into a particular kind of community that is not entered into any other way except by God's doing. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, knows the value of doing good. He knows the value of law-keeping. That's what the Pharisees did really well. They knew their law inside and out. They could quote scripture to you and they were very moral, ethical people. And yet Jesus says to them very clearly that you don't understand the point of those things that you memorize and that which you teach. These will not, those things will not get you into heaven, into the kingdom of God. Rather, only being born again will allow you to enter into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Well, that raises the problem for us is why? Why do we need to be born again? Why do we need to experience this conversion, this this new birth, in order to enter into God's kingdom? There must be a problem that exists in our life and in our world that prohibits us, like Nicodemus, from simply behaving or performing our way into the kingdom of God. There must be something that requires a new birth, something as traumatic and as drastic as a new birth To get into the kingdom of heaven Friends, I am about a month out From the front row seat Of how traumatic birth can be And It's something that I certainly And that I don't have to personally live through But give grace and thanks to God For the strength of my wife It's a traumatic experience To give birth And I assume, I don't remember, to be born This is something Jesus calls as Something radical you need a new birth to come into the kingdom of heaven. You need to go through the sort of pain and the sort of traumatic experience, the sort of dramatic shift in identity to come into the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, your whole identity is built around the law, around who you are as a Pharisee, a teacher, a moral and upright person. Maybe you're sort of interested in what I have to say. But if you can't understand that something new has to happen to you, you can't come into the kingdom of heaven. You can't come into the kingdom of heaven. Why not? I'll give you two reasons. One, we need to be converted because we don't delight in God. That's one of the most fundamental problems of the human condition is we do not delight in God. It's not something we learn. It's something we are born knowing. We do not delight in God. Consider the command from Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. We are commanded to delight ourselves in the Lord. He is our creator. He has made us. He has formed us in the womb. Children, he is the creator of all things. He made the heaven and the earth, the sun, the stars. He made the trees. He made your parents and he made your friends and he made you. But yet we in our rebellion do not take delight in God as as a creator. We do not take delight in God as a sustainer of life. We do not take delight in the things that God is... Unless at times we feel like he may give us something that we want. But our heart is not really delighting in God. It's delighting in the things God may give us. We may delight in creation. We may delight in the beautiful things like food and coffee or steak or whatever your favorite thing is. But we must delight in God. But the problem is we don't. There's a second reason we need to be converted and why Jesus says there needs to be a new birth not only because we don't delight in God, but it's also because we don't love our neighbor. I think that's a reality we can all admit. The world is broken, and that there isn't an innate desire for one another to love our neighbor consistently and faithfully. Now at times, because we're made in the image of God, we see strangers rushing into fire to save other strangers. We see men and women going to war to help save the lives of those who are innocent. We can praise God for God's common grace in making us in the image and preserving in us A shred of his image and his decency So that we love one another well But friends, we do not love our neighbor And we cannot love our neighbor Because we do not delight in God The Bible will tell us That love of neighbor flows from a love of God This is why the Ten Commandments Are expressed the way they are And the first several Are about our love and devotion to God You shall have no other gods before me No graven images, right? What happens next? Now it turns to love of neighbor. Honor your mother and father. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not covet what your neighbor has. These are things now that turn from God to neighbor. What we need to understand is that if we cannot love God, we will not love neighbor. And these two things are what's wrong with us, with everybody. Even the most respectable, nice person you know fails to love God and neighbor apart from Christ. Without the need of conversion, we are left in our rebellion and hatred of God and love of self. We are left in neglect of our neighbor in the pursuit of our own well-being. And because of this, we are under God's wrath. That's what the Bible tells us. You know the passage well, John 3.16, God sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believe in him shall have eternal life. But it goes on to tell us that actually those who fail to believe will perish. That there's a very real wrath Awaiting those who fail to love and believe God in Christ. And God is just in this wrath. And is just and righteous in his condemnation against sinners like us. For a moment, turn to Romans chapter 1. Keep your thumb here, in John. Go to Romans chapter 1 and listen to what Paul says. It's the reality of all who reject God. He'll spend the first, really, three chapters of this book laying out the universal condemnation before God. But he says early enough on in chapter 1 and verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, the dishonor of their body among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. You see, Paul says that there's a just and a wrathful but a righteous condemnation awaiting those who resist in their rebellion against God, who consist in their in their rebellion, in their believing and suppressing. Of the truth for a lie. So we are under God's wrath. Again, consider verse 23 of chapter 3 of the book of Romans. 323 says, you may know it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. He has just made the case for every Jew and for every Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what what does this mean for those who are sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God? Chapter 6, verse 23 again. The wages of sin is what? Death. So our sin has earned us the wage of God's wrath, has earned us compensation of death because we did not and do not delight in God we do not love our neighbor. And therefore, we cannot earn our salvation. And we cannot earn favor without a conversion. Do you see now that there needs to be a new birth for God to allow us to bring and bring us into this new kind of community, this covenant relationship with him in the the work and the the person of Jesus into the kingdom of God, which Christ is establishing in his own blood? We need the new birth as John says records Jesus saying to Nicodemus. Well, why? What does conversion actually do? Again, let me give you three things conversion does. Number 1, conversion is the entrance into kingdom, into the kingdom community of Christ. Again, remember what John what what Jesus says to Nicodemus, "Unless you have been born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven." There's not a caveat or an exception to it. Unless you've been born of water and the Spirit, unless you've experienced a new birth, as radical and as transforming as it is, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And though Nicodemus did not get this, thought Jesus was speaking literally, Jesus very clearly tells him that this is about what the Spirit is doing in the work of his people. Conversion is the entrance into the kingdom community of Christ. It's the way we enter into the kingdom of God. So as a church, we need to recognize that the people who comprise the church, not just the people who come on Sunday mornings and sit in the chairs, but those who are of the church are those who have been brought through the threshold by conversion in whom the Spirit has moved and saved the Spirit in which we have been born again. So conversion brings us into the community of Christ. But secondly, conversion is the unifying reality of the kingdom community of Christ. And not only is the entrance into that kingdom community, but it's the unifying reality. Now that we are in this community together, we are bound and unified together by that conversion, by the work of God calling and regenerating our hearts from death to life, by giving us the eyes to see, by giving us the, the ability to repent and turn to him in faith. We are unified by that fact what god has done for us in christ and paul talks about this unifying reality in first corinthians chapter 10 and 12 you don't have to turn there let me read to what he says about how we take communion with one another and the reality of a unification the cup of blessing that we bless is not is it not participation in the blood of christ the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of christ because there is one bread and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And for just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, well, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Conversion unifies the church together. So, friends, we're unified together not because we like the same things. We're not unified together because we come to the same places at the same time. We're not unified together when Josh and Jay and I wear the same shirt as I almost texted you to do. (laughs) We're unified because we've been converted and brought into the community of God. Now this is true with every church in every age, but it's especially true of this church together. The thing that unifies us and makes us a reality rather than just an idea is the conversion we've experienced in Christ. And so we celebrate that. So the work that we do as a community, the the work of confrontation and the work of confession in our community actually demonstrates the reality of our conversion. The fact that we can come to one another, confront one another, confess our sins to one another, bear in our sins with one another, to lift up the the weak and, and help the strong do its work. We are actually witnessing to the reality of our conversion. This sort of work marks us off as a distinct community for Christ and of Christ. Conversion does that. There are many other good organizations that do a lot. A lot of social justice organizations that help feed the homeless and the poor. That does work all throughout the globe. And yet there's only one that can actually glorify God. And that's the community of the converted, of the redeemed. And that's the sort of community we must be as a church if we're to walk in step with what the gospel teaches. So conversion is the entrance into the kingdom community of Christ. It's the unifying reality of the kingdom community of Christ but conversion is also the great commission of the kingdom community of Christ conversion is the great commission of the kingdom community of Christ we've been converted and yet most of the world has not and so just as we have been called and we have been been redeemed we are also sent just as Jesus was to call forward and bring redemption to others This is what Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to go and make disciples of every nation. You've been converted so now go do the work of conversion. Now to be fair Jesus is not saying we have the ability to save. The Spirit does that work. But he calls us into the world. He sends us into the world to preach the message of reconciliation so the work of conversion takes place in the reality of the hearts of those who hear it and receive it by faith. This is the aspect of the work I think that we often fail to do. We celebrate and are thankful for God's work in our lives. But we don't take the steps outside of our own community to show the work of conversion in the life of others, to seek it, to pray for it, to work hard for it. And friends, this is what we must focus on. So we need to be converted because we need to be entered into the kingdom of heaven. We need to be united together in Christ in a true sense of community. We need to be sent out into the world We cannot do this on our own. We cannot earn our salvation or our conversion. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, the spirit goes where he'd like. We cannot ever earn our salvation. Conversion is the work of Christ coming and taking us and giving us this new birth and bringing us into the community. This is what we need to enter into the community of God. We need the new birth. We need Christ condescending, leaving his throne in heaven, taking us by the hand and bringing us into. That's what conversion actually is. He opens our eyes. He softens our hearts. He melts away the hardness that's there in sin and he says, come with me. Only a converted community can practice the works of grace that glorify God. Only a converted community can faithfully witness the radical transformation of the gospel. When Jesus really grabs us by the hands or by the heart, sometimes By the neck. We are going out into the community to show what Jesus does for us. Radically transforming us by giving us a new birth. So there's three things we have to do in light of this. The work of conversion first must be celebrated. We must celebrate the work of conversion. That Christ has given us new eyes. That God has saved us and we have been born again by the Spirit. We must celebrate the new birth the work of conversion. We celebrate that by coming and reading and hearing from God's word. We celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that when we remind one another of the grace of God in our lives because of conversion, when we, when we encourage one another to forsake that sin that's who we're holding on to, to be encouraged instead of being discouraged by our situation. We are celebrating the work of conversion, the reality of the new birth. Secondly, we also must remember it. The work of conversion must be remembered. It's too easy to forget what Christ has done and therefore to resort back to doing the things in our own strength. We often forget that Jesus has already grabbed us by the hand and has given us the new eyes to see, the new heart to believe in this new covenant that we no longer have to continue to work for our own salvation. We need to remember. And again, the Lord's Supper is a time each week to remember the new birth. And lastly, the work of conversion must be prioritized. It means that we can't just sit on our hands and be thankful for conversion. But we must then go out into the world to work for the conversion of other people, as God wills. Friends, this is the priority of the church now. This is the mission of the church. So as I have been sent, so I have sent you. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. Our unity in the word is not for our own goodness only, but for the goodness of the world, the blessing of the world in which we are sent to preach this message, this good news of Jesus, who suffered and died for our sins. So friends, we may find ourselves very much on the one side of the aisle, sinful. But Jesus has come and he's redeemed us and he's called us into the sort of community that we are to be, according to the Bible. And then he sends us into the world to, to manifest and give witness to that reality. So I want to encourage you, if you found yourself not yet rejoicing in the work of your own conversion, take a moment and celebrate and give thanks to God this morning. If you find yourself having forgotten that you've been saved, and this fear, this failure, or this neglect that you've been hanging on to has caused you not to move beyond it, remember that Christ has saved you, and has called you, and has given you a new birth. And we together as a church must remember that we have been called and sent to go into the world. We must ask for forgiveness in our neglect of that calling and reprioritize it for this new year. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this work of conversion that we had nothing ultimately to do with. As we saw, there's no, no amount of good works, no amount of, of favor that we could carry with you because we are sinful. Our hearts love our sin and ourselves and our comfort too much to ever seek you perfectly. But we are thankful that you sent Christ who takes us by the hand in our heart and leads us. And that experience that we can see and be part of is our conversion. So we're thankful for you for that. Would you help that reality be true in these kids' lives and in our lives and in the lives of those around the world? Well, we love you and we pray and we thank you in Jesus' name.